first behavior to strive to be multiplied unto us, being now or in every hand for Amen. Not here this evening is my immediate portion of God's word from the twelfth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. That's a familiar place to many by reading. Again, reading from the first verse of that chapter and read the uh, we'll read the verse verses in Jesus' name. And the words are as follows. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. All the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun, or the light, or the moon, or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. Amen. Have a portion of the word here that has been written by a man who was who has experienced many, many things in this life. One of the perhaps most renowned men of the scriptures that is often mentioned, namely Solomon. He writes unto us these words of instruction and exhortation tonight. Many times we think that the word of God, that how wonderfully God has caused it to be preserved and how he has caused it to be written by many, many hearts, as we might say, many gifts. And uh, perhaps we are somewhat acquainted with the life of Solomon a man who sought after great wealth in this world and he had a mind that was a searching mind sought out many mysteries he had the resources whereby he was able to explore many different areas of human life and uh, we remember that he was a man so renowned the temple that he built was or that the place where he ruled was such a magnificent, magnificent place that uh, people came from great distances to see his uh, the marvels that the eye was able to behold. You remember when the Queen of Sheba, for instance, visited the court of Solomon? She had heard about it interested in coming to see and yet even though she saw the court of Solomon she had only up to that point heard about it and she had to admit that not even the half had been told of it when she beheld and uh, so marvelous a situation did this man live in it perhaps defies the 
explanation by the natural tongue. But yet, as we are led to believe that this man strayed in many different ways, really, from the will of God, and uh, therefore his end is rather a questionable one as far as spiritual life was concerned it didn't appear that it was left a very good life but I for one am not going to be the judge of that man's soul but yet the thought that comes to me as we read the words of Solomon in spite of all this he had some very good exhortation and advice that even God has seen fit to leave unto us if we might say that well how does God then leave this kind of an exhortation unto us if the man's end was a rather questionable one that how can God use that kind of an exhortation then we ought to believe the man lived in many Always a lot of foolishness in his life. But uh, it seems as though God still is able to use even such people in exhorting us that we might learn something from their experiences. We often thought of this, we discussed this on the way, somewhere along the way, one of our Christian brothers that uh, for instance we see in the kingdom of God today that there are two kinds of people really in a sense there are those that have remained as childhood Christians and preserved their faith from their youth up remain the children of God by his grace and then there are those who have come from the world, prodigal sons and daughters, and that they have been called by repentance, God to repent and to believe the gospel, and have also become the children of God by faith. Therefore, it seems as though many times that how could a person in this condition be as valuable unto God as though, or I mean the one who has come afterwards, how could he be as valuable unto God as the one who has always remained a child of God? But yet we notice that even in the time of the apostles, it was the same way. There were those that had been with Jesus, disciples of our Lord, and who went on to be the chosen apostles, the new church and then we also remember that there was for instance Saul of Tarsus was called afterwards to repent and to believe the gospel and yet we notice that there were those instances where he was able to contribute that is Saul was later known as Paul that he was able to contribute something unto the the, uh, the ministry, as we might say, of the new Christian church. He was able to even help those who were the 
ministers of that church probably have not experienced quite the same things that he has. That is why in the kingdom of God even, it's well for us to remember that God still does things in his own way. Therefore, if we are going to be, we are going to seek to understand these many matters, it's well for us to always remember this, that we might seek the advice of those who have perhaps known even a different kind of a life, and uh, perhaps even those who have been a different kind of a church, and it seems as though we all are able to contribute something unto the total of that matter. And uh, oftentimes I am sure that unto many of us who have been the prodigals in this world, God has given unto us the grace to return unto the fold, that uh, we oftentimes look upon those who have remained as childhood Christians and oftentimes I, for one, have to say that I uh, envy those who have been able to remain as childhood Christians because it would have been such a wonderful thing to always be a Christian and to avoid many of the difficulties that come into the life of a person who has lived in all the sins of this world. And therefore, there I find myself thinking many times that why did I ever have to go into the world? Why didn't I remain a child of God? But we cannot go back and begin to live it over again. It is just the way it is tonight for each of us. We find ourselves as children of God, that is all that counts tonight. And, uh, but we notice a word here that begins with the words of this man who writes this, and he teaches us to remember the Creator in the days of our youth. And just a thought, sometimes the childhood Christian begins to look from their own side of this matter, and perhaps someone who has been in the world and who has been prodigal, certain experience perhaps or experiences that are more vivid concerning the the uh, transition between time or they have a deeper realization perhaps of what it is to face the goodness of God when our sins are forgiven the great burden of sin when we come from the world sometimes children young people have felt this way that they have listened to the preachers speak of their experience of repenting of sin and coming, becoming a child of God and the enemy of the soul has many times told a young Christian even that that why don't you go out and see what the world has had to offer, has to offer unto you, that you will have a definite experience of returning unto the fold of God. We surely know that this is a sermon of the devil, and 
our scripture lesson here tonight even teaches against such a thing. For he teaches us to remember our Creator in the days of our youth. From our very childhood up, it teaches us to remember our Creator so that we would not begin to take that kind of chances because all of us, regardless of who we are, we have to admit that we are saved by God's grace through faith. And none of us can could return unto the fold or no one can become a child of God, but the world sometimes seems to put this matter that it is like almost like turning on a light switch, that it would be that simple for man to be transformed into a child of God. We know that many times we hear the statements made that there are perhaps <coughs> revival meetings in some circles in this world and people will make this statement that they there were so many people that received Christ at a certain gathering. I believe that this is good for us that we might remember that this is not really spiritual or biblical teaching because that is not really the way it works. For we see that still even in our society, we study this matter a little ways see that actually the child of God knows the Lord Jesus Christ as being the bridegroom and therefore even in our natural marriage relationship I believe it's still that way that it is the bridegroom that invites the girl to become the bride and were it the other way around, then the matter of people receiving Christ would be proper. But biblically it is wrong because, because we do not accept Jesus Christ according to scriptures. But the bridegroom who is Christ must accept us as his bride. And therefore, no matter how a girl might even in natural sense a desire perhaps to marry someone but it is impossible as it seems to be unless the man would ask her to be his bride so let us always remember that for a person to become a child of God not just our end of the deal as we might say but it requires that heaven would call us to become the children of God and so therefore to that youngster who might even think of it this way that uh, perhaps I would learn something if I were to take a trip as it were into the world and then come back let us remember that we cannot return by our own strength but God must still call us unto repentance and perhaps it has happened many, many times in this life that the enemy of the soul has tempted young, a young person to leave that blessed condition with that thought that I can return when I become lonely out in the world. And yet, 
we were to see those souls who have done that, we wonder how many have ever been able to return again to the fold. That song of lament from the beginning time that we would hear. I'm sure that it would be such that don't ever leave the Creator, do not forsake Him, He will not forsake you, but always remember Him in the days of your youth. So many times we, and as we go just another little portion further in our text, it goes on to tell us here that while the evil days come nigh, or the years draw nigh, as our text goes on to tell us, that he is so <coughs> aware of this that man should not delay. He should not delay remembering the the, the benefits of our Lord and that he should not harden his heart to the calling of God when he calls unto repentance. I believe that there are many of us here tonight, perhaps there are many of us here, spoke to a precious brother last night who was telling of his experience of having come, become a child of God during the same awakening in which my wife and I received the grace to repent, to leave the gospel. And uh, I often think of that time in which we lived, at that time, 26 years ago about, that uh, oftentimes we recall this, my wife and I and some of the other children of God there in our community, that what a blessing it was at that time that it seems to me that God calls so many awakens so many and calls so many unto the fold that it seems to me that if it was for the age in which we live today that how difficult it would be to find a place of repentance in the heart think oftentimes that even though all things are possible with God and that God is able to call men at any time of their life or in any time of history as we might say but it seems to me when I think of the lives that we lived in those days even in a sense our lives were so much more simple in their way the world was less complicated seemed as though there were far less situations into which we got involved. There were far less attractions for this human heart that would distract us from thinking of the things that pertain to eternity. Many times we've thought of this, that now is a time that we can give thanks unto God that he has given unto us the possibility of repenting and believing the gospel so many years ago. Seems as though today when we think about this matter, there seems to be less and less of a concern for the matters of eternity in the hearts of men. <coughs> Therefore, a wonderful bit of advice it is here that when man ought to remember the Lord, but the, the Creator, 
as we go to hear before the evil days come, or while the evil days come not. I suppose that each of us have to look upon this matter. He tells us here he speaks of our youth. Do not believe that he speaks only in this way to say that those who have passed the time of their youth, that they cannot more be saved. I don't believe that he's speaking about that. I believe that he's speaking about this, that there is a time. Like in the days of our youth, we are strong, we are powerful, we are able to even carry on our heavy labors in this world, our secular duties, and we have the strength of our bodies. But uh, also there is a time that God gives unto every man when he is able to believe. There is, I believe, a thought here in our text that there is two kinds of strength and youth that he gives unto us. One is our physical capability of laboring and working, and the other is the possibility of comprehending and understanding the word that we hear. We see that it has happened many, many times, I am sure, that God has called many souls. He has been sure that he has been able to make known his wish, his desire that people would repent of their sins and believe the gospel, but they have waited so long that they have lost, perhaps even at a younger age already, they have lost that strength and that youth that our very text here speaks about, and they have lost the ability to believe that gospel under the saving of their soul. There are many instances of this we know that have been very sad happenings where even the children of Christian parents brought up in a Christian home have known very well what they ought to do like most like we who are who are the children of Christian parents we've always been aware of this of how we are to repent of our sins what we are to do and how we are to approach the throne of grace to find and see and to receive the forgiveness of our sins there have been many of those who have surely known this matter, how they ought to be converted, what they ought to do, and yet they have waited till that time of youth and strength has gone from them. You know how sad it must be for a person who has gone past that time in their life that God has given them the strength to repent and to believe. We have rejected the word of God. And how we have testimonies of this happening. A Christian woman one time was stricken with a terminal illness and was taken to the hospital. And perhaps everybody thought that she would repent. She's a child of Christian parents and she knows what she ought to do. And yet, told that the Christians heard that she was in the hospital and they knew of her condition 
they went to her bedside and they began to tell the story of Jesus as if to awaken in her heart that gift that she had had when she was a child and yet no matter how the children of God would visit her talk to her about her soul condition there was no real response at all she had to admit that there was a time when God had called her given her the possibility of repenting of her sins and to believe it but now she had to admit that that time had gone the day of her youth in this matter even was a thing of the past and therefore she knew that she was lost forever to be separated from God they thought our text leaves to us about this matter this man who wrote this had seen all the vanity that perhaps anyone in this world had ever seen seen the wealth of this world he had seen that all is vanity regardless of how glittering and how promising it may have been as it appeals unto the human mind but yet he narrows down his thinking closing part of the book of Ecclesiastes and he tells us that this is the one thing that is important unto man that he would take heed of God's word that is a wonderful advice unto us in the midst of this materialistic life in which we live when the hearts of men have to be so engaged in the many complexities of the life and the business of this day there we need to pray as God's children even that this surely is an exhortation unto all of us that we might pray that our hearts would not be so taken up by the material things of this life and the seeking of a livelihood that we would not have time to consider the things that pertain unto the salvation of our undying soul for which Jesus our Lord has shed his holy precious blood and here he teaches us to remember in the days of our youth let us remember this matter here of the evil days drawing nigh or, or the evil days that will come in the years draw nigh and so it goes in the life of a man until his end coming we visit our nursing homes we have been visiting on this journey even and there we see the reality so starkly before us there are even children of Christian parents sitting there for whom their parents have sent up many, many prayers into the heart of the righteous Father. Yet they are there, no hope of eternal life. They have waited too long. We think of this matter of salvation many times, as I made mention, that uh, a man thinks about this matter that it is so simple that uh, oftentimes we even 
we are so prone as God's children, as the, and as the servants of God, when we think of this matter, we visit these people in these various situations in life. Our hearts go out. We see they are living the very evening, twilight moments of their lives. We speak unto them. Yeah, they seem to express a certain amount of understanding. They are able still to register and respond unto the preaching of God's word. We visit with them personally. And uh, we oftentimes feel in our hearts as we depart from them. We bless them and we go on our way. And we pray to God that Heavenly Father give them faith to believe. Because we realize that this matter of salvation is not so simple. Now especially for those who are young here tonight. God is the, the, the writer here is especially speaking tonight. Sometimes we in the possibly Lutheran Church where we believe according to scriptures that needful it is for us to bless one another with the forgiveness of sins. Needful it is for a person to be comforted with the forgiveness of his own sins. Sometimes we can even go so far as to say that perhaps uh, <coughs> or, or we, if we do not notice we are able to even look at this matter in such a way that we do not, if we are not watchful, that this very matter even might become almost a mechanical thing. That sometimes a person might begin to look like this or begin to observe, and uh, perhaps he began to speak unto a another person about the condition of their soul and uh, they began to urge them to repent and to believe and uh, perhaps even the person who is being urged will begin to ask that really what must I do that I might be saved the Bible has an answer unto this it teaches us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Sometimes we as God's children might even begin to make such a mechanical thing of this that uh, we might say that, well, let me bless you with the forgiveness of sins and you will become a child of God. This is not a scriptural thought because it requires also a believing heart. That is why I believe the writer of this very text urges man to repent yet when he is able to believe. This is how far this reaches. I do not know and I am not the judge of the end of this man he was very aware of the majesty of God and he was always acquainted to the ways and the will of God. 
But uh, this can, could have happened to him as could happen to any person that we carry in our knowledge and understanding of the will of God. We respect him and we perhaps worship him in some way in our lives. We give honor and glory unto God. But yet it is another matter to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to the saving of the soul. I remember last spring it was, was at a school graduation event and a woman came to me there and uh, she began to speak about her mother. Mother is in a nursing home quite far from our community and her mother is getting rather frail. She's up in years. And she asked me a question. And she said, that, do you think that uh, even though my mother has uh, used the word converted in her old age, that do you think she will be saved? I do not know exactly, I was not acquainted with the situation exactly, though I knew who she was, who that old mother was, and I had to answer her that question very frankly. I said that it's one thing for a person to, to speak about conversion and to perhaps even receive the blessing, the forgiveness of sins, but it is another matter we must always understand that we believe this. And therefore I had to leave her in this thought that the Bible tells us that whosoever believeth shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. That if your mother has repented at a time and she still had the ability if God gave unto her the power to believe then she will go to heaven if she will preserve that faith until she's called away she's going to be saved but if her repentance, her conversion that she was referring to came in a time when she no longer can believe regardless of all the blessing of all the laying on of hands and all the preaching of the gospel if God does not give faith to believe we cannot be saved it is the thought with which I left her this is the thought that our writer tonight sets forth before all of us tonight. For it's one thing for us to understand something with our head and our mind. And uh, it is something for us to have a brilliant understanding of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, his suffering and his death, could have the knowledge of all those things we could be very well versed in the scriptures and uh, we could possess a knowledge in our head of how Jesus suffered and died for the people all the people of the world 
how he rose again according to the scriptures but yet all of this does not add up to the salvation of the soul because we notice that God in his word when he speaks about this matter it is a very matter for all of us to think about and concern ourselves with little matters we might sometimes call and even the outward matters that seem to pertain to the matters of the kingdom of God. But how often do we really concern ourselves with the place of watching where we ask our own heart that question that am I believing according to scriptures? The Bible tells us that with the heart man believeth unto salvation. And there we see that the world possesses a great deal of believing that is only in the head, and it is not in the heart. We often think of this, that how close the two portions of our body are, that perhaps a little more than a foot or twelve inches of distance could possibly separate the two parts of our physical body. But yet we notice that in the eyes of God makes all the difference in the world, as we might say, that with what part of our body we are believed. If we are believing with our head, it is not according to God's word. No matter how well, how well we might be able to stand in the pulpit and perhaps expound the many things pertaining to the word of God. And therefore we find many times that it is difficult even to discern and that it's not my job, that it's not my realm to discern where a man's faith actually is, where his believing is. But oh, that God would give us a serious thought in this matter that where is my faith tonight? Is, am I believing on the Lord Jesus Christ tonight with my heart? Has God given faith unto my heart to believe? We see that it is so important that it is this way. Many times we wonder about that statement that we find in the scripture that uh, <coughs> tells us that with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. I've often wondered what does it really mean then to that why did God ever choose such a part of our body that he said that it is with our heart that we believe? At first it seemed as though it's rather a, a uh, question that has very little virtue or value to explore, but nevertheless it was always kind of a question that nagged me that why did God and how does God choose that part of our body with which we believe and unto salvation 
It's a wonderful thing to think that God has, God who is the very author of our salvation, an all-wise and an infinitely wise God, that has planned it this way, that with the faith of the heart we are saved. And we return, receive such a wonderful benefit that a crown of eternal life by the faith that God places into our hearts. I should say that this matter it is something that the world cannot comprehend and my mind cannot comprehend because my mind will say that I must bring something unto God. I must be able to present something unto God like the world will say that surely you understand it is not that simple. Now many yet today will say that it is not so simple as just to believe. But yet again I repeat which I perhaps already stated today that I will stay with the word of God in this matter. But I am afraid that many times when the question has risen, I would like to examine what kind of a heart the question arises when it comes to questioning the simplicity of the salvation that is by faith. Oftentimes when these questions begin to arise, when even the teachers of God's word are questioned, about the way they teach and perhaps the way they preach. I've often had to say that when questions that vital have been, when things that vital have been questioned, such as the pure word of God, I would like to choose to ask that person that when has God given you the grace to believe your sins forgiven. When have you received the grace to repent of your sins and have the blood of Jesus cleanse you of unrighteousness? And I am sure that it has closed many a mouth that has stood against the word of God in this matter. Because the Bible always lays the matter of salvation in this one area, and that is the faith of the heart. Therefore, before man begins to question the written word of God, it would be safer for him to ask himself that question always. That where do I find the hope of my salvation? that in my better knowledge and all the books that I have read is that in this that I have read the opinions of many of the elders of the church and I have a mental library of many many verses and perhaps chapters of what they have written and uh, yet we see how a poor place it is in if it is in those things alone of God, all the writings of those elders, no matter how clearly we might know them and how clearly we might be able to define perhaps even the thoughts with which they wrote them, God is never going to ask you, never going to ask me a single question about whether I have written this book or whether I have read that book. 
But the question is going to be that whether God's grace or whether I have sought by God's grace to retain that eternal hope of salvation that I have laid hold of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ that he accomplished for me through his redemption. That is going to be the only question. And therefore, beloved, let us stay at this kind of a place always when we think of this matter of what it is to be saved. In times we think of our... Now this matter again I return to say of why God has placed this matter of salvation into the faith of the heart. Again we return probably to repeat for the tenth time that why didn't he allow it that it would be in our head. But I suppose when if it was in our head we'd have gathered so many useless things into our head that would not edify would be of no value unto God. But have you ever thought of this? That why God has chosen that particular organ of our body with which we are to believe upon the Son of God. We've not always stop to think about this matter. Perhaps we've often questioned it. But I've learned a little bit something. I don't claim to be wise. But uh, I believe that as we visit the elders' homes, we visit people and we are acquainted with them from year to year, we come to an answer to this front, this matter. And how vividly it is sometimes brought unto our attention. And uh, there the most closely we can realize this when we go to visit these old people, those who have received the grace, as he tells us here, those who have uh, remembered the Creator in the days of their youth. Now it does not mean that we have no chance, I repeat again, that we do not have a chance of salvation, even though we are called to repentance and faith at an older age. But so there will be no mistake in this. I say that when God gives the grace for man to repent and believe, so much, then, for this one particular principle. A woman has certain authority in life. A woman has right. By the way, you children, remember that. Teenagers start to sass their mothers. Well, you women, just pull down your hair and show them who wears the pants in the family. Every woman has authority over children. In divine institution number three, the life allowed with the husband carries authority. And teenage children who sass their mothers are going to get it from God if they don't get it from their parents. They should. Sometimes there's a man around who lambasts them the way they need it. Or maybe there's enough of a man to really do the job right. But when a little bit 
boys and girls who are teenagers and think they're already adults begin to sass their parents. They are way, way out of line, and they're going to be disciplined in life for this time until they straighten out on that point. Now, you may think that your mother is part of the expression old hat, and you may start rebelling when you get into the teens. The child who rebels in the teens is going to have the most miserable youth in the 20s that can be imagined. And much of the trouble that comes to people in their 20s was started in their teens by rebellion. Now, the woman wears long hair, and that long hair is a badge of her authority. First of all, it was her right to make decisions in life. It was her right to choose a husband. And by the way, a woman who is forced into submission, it's wrong. It is bullying. It is evil. But a woman who willingly accepts a man and submits to him, this is the most beautiful thing in the world, and it's her privilege and her right. And her long hair is the badge for that. So much man, generally, for the doctrine of authority. Now, this doctrine of authority is going to come back to haunt some of these bullies in just a moment. Let's move on to the next doctrine. The next doctrine which is brought out is the doctrine of creation. After all, man and woman were originally created. And when they were created, what was the purpose of all of this? Well, we have the beginning of that in verse 7. For a man, indeed, ought not to cover his head. That means covered with long hair. Now, then you have right to wear hats. But to cover it with long hair. I don't know whether you know it or not, but following this same principle, uh, in many types of life, and it's been true for thousands of years, people to show their authority, the outward badge of the authority, is usually something that's worn on the head. Kings wear crowns. The crown was the badge of authority. In the ancient world, officers in uh, military organizations did not wear rank on their shoulder or on their collar. They wore it in their hat. It was their helmet. It was the type of cap that they had on their helmet. It was the type of plume on the cap that indicated their rank. And so throughout the ages, a rank and authority has often been designated by something that one wears. Now God, uh, the human race for the jump on this thing, by giving the man a certain type of authority, and by giving the woman a certain type of authority, and by giving the woman a badge for her authority, a man ought not to cover his head. Does this mean you men can't wear a hat? No, man. This does not forbid you wearing hats. It forbids you letting your hair grow too long, though. When your hair is so long, that you can hide goofballs in it and other things, paraphernalia used by hoods today, then your hair, of course, is too long. For a man, indeed, ought not to cover his head. This means to wear long hair. This means to wear female veils. For as much as he is the image and the glory of God. Now, the man in the original creation was the image and glory of God. What on earth does it mean? The image of God and the glory of God. Well, without going into the three Hebrew words which are used in connection with the creation of man and uh, the rest of it, the image of God means that man has inside of him, as of the moment of his creation, a soul. And that in that soul, he had certain functions. For example, uh, three of these functions, which actually form the image of God, have to do with self-consciousness. Man was aware of his own existence. So we put down, first of all, self-consciousness. Not only did he have this in the realm of his soul, 
but he had it in the realms of spirit. The soul was directed toward lower creation, and then when woman was created, toward the woman. The spirit was directed toward God, and in innocence, man had fellowship with God, and he had fellowship with the lower creation, and then eventually with his partner, the woman. So first of all, it meant self-consciousness. He was aware of his existence. Later on, built in, but not used in innocence, well, the ability to make decisions and to distinguish between right and wrong, we call it conscience. In other words, we just pronounce conscience, I ought to do this, I ought not to do that. And thirdly, it was the ability to make decisions, volition. Now, this is what the image of God means. When it says that man was created in the image of God, he had a functional life on the inside, life that cannot be seen. He had a soul in the spirit. He had the ability to make decisions. He had the ability to discern between that which was correct and that which was incorrect, right and wrong. He was aware of his own existence, and he was aware of his relationship with God and innocence. He was aware of his relationship of dominating lower creation and self-core innocence. And he was also aware of his wife and the role that she played in all of this. So all of these things came from the inside, and this is man as the image of God. And why was man created in the image of God? So that he could glorify God. And that has to do with man's volition. God set up a test under the angelic conflict, and under this test, man could make his decision for or against God. Eventually, man made his decision against God, and then God set up a new test, the cross, whereby the decision can be made again to resolve the angelic conflict. But the point is this. Not only is the doctrine of authority a part of this problem of what the woman should wear in her head, but the second part of it is why did man come in the first place? Why was man brought into the world? He was brought in to glorify God. Now, the next question, stand by, ladies. Why was the woman brought into the world? To glorify man. Let's read it. Verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. Man was brought into the world to glorify God. Woman was brought into the world to glorify man. And you know it's true, and it's been true in life for a long time. Men aren't often judged by their own characteristics and abilities. They're often judged by the woman who's their wife or the girl they go with or whatever it happens to be. So, in the original concept of creation, the woman was created to glorify the man. Now, really, there comes a problem. Well, doesn't this mean that the woman is inferior to the man? No. Definitely not. In fact, uh, there are obviously too many cases where the woman is superior to the man. Actually, as far as the word of God is concerned, they are equal. Verse 9 now. Neither was the man created for the woman. The man wasn't created for the woman, therefore the man should never wear long hair or women's hats. But the woman for the man. Now please notice the woman was created for the man and not for the angels. This brings in a background of something we will not study today. The angelic infiltration and its devastating effects are described in Genesis chapter 6. But the woman was specifically created for the man's benefit. And in order to do this properly, we've stated before, in the original creation of the woman, 
the woman was taken out of the man so that something from the man is missing, and only when he gets it back, i.e. marriage, is he complete again. The exception of this, of course, is the operation of the spiritual gift of celibacy. But apart from that, this is the principle. And therefore, the original purpose of the woman in creation was to implement, to complement, to make the man complete, and therefore, a woman in that sense is always a source of happiness to a man, except in cases of where in the completion of it she becomes a thorn in the side instead of the blessing she was intended. Now, this is all doctrine of the original creation. And maybe one would begin to think, ah, so the woman was just made for the man, sort of like a dog, and uh, you pet the dog, and you pet the woman, and say goodbye, and uh, I'll see you when I need you, and so uh, you think about the dog, and you come back and pet the dog, you think about the woman, you come back and see her, not at all. That's just exactly what someone would think about getting the rest of the doctrine. The point is, that even though a woman was created by God for a specific purpose to provide something that a man could not have himself, she was actually equal with the man in this thing. You see, the man without the woman is incomplete. The woman without the man is incomplete, except where the gift of celibacy is given. Apart from that, man without woman incomplete. Woman without man, incomplete. Therefore, since they require each other for completion, they are equal in the partnership. Now, there must be a time when there is the exercise of authority, and in the exercise of authority, the man is given certain responsibilities. But, when God made the woman, he not only made the woman to fulfill the man, but he made the woman to be fulfilled by the man, and the fact that even though she has a responsibility in life toward the man, the fact that she is equal with the man and just as important as the man and is given a soul like the man and a brain that can think like a man, there's no difference between a woman's brain and a man's brain. We talk about the male viewpoint and the female viewpoint. It's a myth. There are just different kinds of brains. It doesn't have anything to do with male or female. But there is something in the soul of a woman whereby she wants the man. There is something in the soul of a man whereby he is completed by the woman. They need each other, and therefore marriage is a partnership and not a dictatorship. And the sign of all of this, now ladies, you start letting your hair grow right over the ears. The sign of all of this is the woman's long hair. I don't know how aware of this you are, but while all males and females uh, have heads and arms and legs and so on, they are made very marvelously different in order to emphasize this point. The man needs the woman. The woman needs the man. The two become one and are completed. God took the woman. He didn't say, presto, the woman stood up. He took the woman right out of the man. And... The woman is at her best when she goes back to the right man, but the right man depends upon her volition, except in cases, as I have previously pointed out, cases of where the gift of celibacy actually exists in order to glorify God. And as the gift exists in both the male and the female, whereby God is glorified in some very wonderful and special way. 
now verse 10. For this cause, because of this doctrine, a woman ought to have power, literally the word power is authority. She ought to have authority on the head, and authority on the head is her hair. The woman's hair is her authority. Now all this is doing is stop the bullies right in the back. The next time they come, you men step aside and bow and greet them. Don't you ever try to stop a woman again who doesn't wear a hat. And don't you ever criticize a woman who doesn't wear a hat or a veil. And don't you ever bully a woman because of her dress. Now the doctrine is all designed for a purpose. It is designed with something a little more subtle than just this one case. It is designed to set up a system. Men, you need the woman. Woman, you need the man. One of the great hindrances in relationship between male and female is that the man immediately assumes that because he is a male, he is superior. And immediately assumes that he can only express his superiority and feel like a man when he is pulling a woman. And therefore behind this is this fantastic principle that when love exists between male and female, it is true that the man has authority. It is also true that the woman is willing for the man to have the authority. She loves him and therefore she wants him to have the authority. But it is also true that they are equal and that they are in partnership and that they complete each other. And therefore, it was a terrible thing in the day in which this was written, and the trend is developing again. The fat-headed, egocentric, loud-mouthed, bullying male, he can never feel good unless he's pushing some woman around and making life miserable for her. There's no place for that in the Word of God. There's no place for that in Christianity. For this cause ought a woman to have authority on the head. In other words, the woman has certain freedoms in life. The woman has certain rights in life. The woman's hair is her veil. It is her badge of authority. And even though she was created for the benefit of a man, this badge indicates her right or authority. Verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is the man apart from the woman nor the woman without the man in the Lord. This is what I've just given you. For the woman is literally from the source of the man. In the original creation, the woman was taken from the man. Even so, the man also is because of the woman, literally. But all things are from the source of God. Now, while the man and the woman have certain different functions in life, God is the source of their functions, and both of them can have the most marvelous happiness. Now, the next verse, in verse 13, is an appeal to common sense in this matter. The word judge means to discern. Discern in yourselves. Is it comely or proper for a woman to pray unto God uncovered? Oh no. What does it mean uncovered? Well, we've already seen what it means for a woman to pray uncovered. It means to have her hair all shaved off her head. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is dishonoring to him. Did you hear that? If a man has long hair, it is dishonoring 
He was ashamed to him. In other words, as a man trying to be like a woman. Short hair and God's order for the male. Shorter than a woman's. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, literally. The woman's glory is in her long hair. She glorifies God because she's a human being. She becomes a bride to a man by being married to one, or going with one, or whatever the situation may be in different circumstances of life. But the point is, the woman's function, in some senses, is a submissive one. It is a responding one. But her submissiveness and her response does not eliminate her equality. It is a glory to her. And this means not only from the standpoint of her physical beauty, but it is also from the standpoint of her equality in the human race and her right to be there. For her hair is given to her. This is given by God. The word for is literally instead of a covering. Instead of a hat, a woman has her hair. Instead of a veil, her hair is given to her instead of a veil or instead of a hat. All, uh, therefore, that a woman needs in coming to church, the superficial evaluation of this passage, is her own hair. And no one has the right to turn her out. No one has the right to bully her. No one has the right to say that she can't be there. Then one more verse more or less covers the rest of the situation specifically. Verse 16. If any man seems to be contentious, or the bullies, a bullying Christian is always a contentious Christian. A Christian who uh, generally has no spiritual gifts of leadership, but is always trying to take over, always trying to make the congregation live by certain taboos, always trying to bend the congregation to his will, this type of person is contentious, implacable, troublemaker from the word go. But if any man seems to be contentious, we have no such custom. What do you mean no such custom? No custom whereby women have to wear hats in church. Neither any of the churches of God. Not only is it not a local custom where you are, but it is not a local custom that any church will ever in church exists. Now, one other verse, the overall solution to the problem. Many of these details may escape you for the moment. We've had to cover them rapidly and without going into too much exegetical analysis. But there is an overall principle. Not only under Christianity does there a recognition of the equality of the male and the female, both are in union with Christ. Not only does there a recognition of various types of principles of authority and the right of the woman to make certain choices for herself and the right of the woman to submit to the man of her choice rather than to some marriage contract made when she was a baby. But in addition to all of these things, there is an overall principle whereby these adjustments are properly made without even knowing these details. Now we go back to verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Keep on becoming imitators of me, even as I also of Christ. Paul is an imitator of Christ. When he wrote this passage, he was filled with the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is imitating Christ. And these Corinthians need to adjust by means of the spirit-filled life. Now, there are many lessons we learn from the lady's hair. 
we learn something about the principle and doctrine of authority in life. We learn in the second place the meaning of man as the image of God and what is man's purpose on this earth. In the third place, we learn something about man's role in the angelic conflict. In the fourth place, we learn the basis of a woman's protection and equality in life. In the fifth place, we learn the importance of regeneration and making changes in man and adjustments, therefore. In the sixth place, we learn the results of regeneration in temporal life. And in the seventh place, we learn that there is such a thing as senseless or useless suffering. For example, these bullying men who wouldn't let the Greek slave girls come in because they didn't have a hat on. Now that's bullying, and that's senseless and useless suffering. And in every congregation, there are always certain people who in the area of their own sin nature have a trend or a tendency toward making misery for others, and it's useless and it's senseless. There is a great deal of suffering caused among believers which is useless and senseless and contrary to the Word of God. And I want you to ask yourself, as a believer, a very serious and important question. Am I a source of useless and senseless suffering? Do I malign others? Am I bitter and jealous and implacable? Am I critical? Do I go around and run down others? Am I a bully? Am I particularly antagonistic and hostile toward other people? whose customs or habits or taboos or way of life or background is different from my own? Do I cause misery because I go around and bully people? Do I cause misery in my own home because, uh, to be frank, I'm egotistical and I never feel confident until I push my wife around and bully her and make her do things that she doesn't want to do? There is a great deal of suffering which is not caused by divine discipline it is simply caused by being around other people and living with other people and wanting your way and being a bully and being egotistical and demanding your rights and pushing your way around and throwing your weight around and this leads to many abuses in a local church, many abuses in homes, many abuses in social life. I know people in social life who have peculiar behavior patterns. So peculiar that, for example, they will say unkind things about their wife or husband right there. The way they turn out not the point. The point is it's no one else's business. I know women who run around and complain about their husbands all day. I know men who run around town and complain about their wives. I know people who run around and malign people. I know children, for example, who go to school and complain about their parents. It is not the business of anyone else what goes on in the home. And this is strange and peculiar behavior. It indicates a desire to rule and to run and to bully and to have your way. It indicates a deep-seated ego activity. And there is absolutely no place for it in Christianity. This passage is so designed to show us that there is such a thing as senseless, useless, needless suffering. And that there is a basis of correction of this. All useless, senseless, Neither suffering can be corrected by means of the spirit-filled life. Keep on becoming imitators of me, even as I also am an imitator of Christ. In other words, Paul says, do what I'm doing, be filled with the spirit. And under the principle of the spirit-filled life, many of these things that are unknown specifically by doctrine can be corrected by being controlled by the third person of the Trinity, the one who lives in us the life of Christ, whereby we glorify him in phase two.
written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. The greatest decision that you can ever make is the decision to trust in the Lord. The Lord died on the cross. Jesus Christ took your place. He became your substitute. And therefore, right where you sit right now, you can say, Father, I believe. I receive Christ as my Savior. I'm putting my trust in him. Make your decision right now. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God are brighter on him. You have been listening to R.B. King Jr. of Houston, Texas. If you've enjoyed this program, please...